Well, good morning, church. It's so great to be with you. My name is Jeremy. I'm lead pastor here. And uh, uh, shout out to those of you watching or listening online. We're so glad that you guys are part of this with us as well. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping before I begin. I want to let you know, as, as we talk about regularly, we have a mission statement. You just heard about it as we committed to our families. But uh, we're about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. And so we are always looking of ways, how do we help you live that out? And so we rolled this out last week. I'm excited to tell you about, but adopt a family uh, is going to be a huge way. Every Christmas, we're going to do this. Now, it's the first year we've done it. So I know there's a lot of questions. What is this? This is our way of partnering your family with a family in our community who is asking for help, who is saying, look, uh, we're not going to be able to celebrate Christmas. Uh, you know, things are tight. And so what we're going to say is, look, we can literally Make the gospel good news for others in this way. And a lot of times what that means is like, hey, financially, would you join us as we sacrifice financially for something? But the hard part about that is you don't often meet the people on the receiving end of your generosity. This one is different. You get to meet the family. And so if you say, hey, I just want to write a check, that's not the way this works. This one is literally you go to the lobby, you sign up, uh, you go online, you sign up that way either, and, and you go, look, I'm going to get connected my family with another family, and we're going to help make their Christmas awesome, and you get to practice the mission statement with us. Now, parents, if you've ever had that moment, you're like, man, my kids, they're all about getting stuff for Christmas and they've lost it. What a, an amazing way to get your kids and your family to be centered on others as opposed to getting stuff at Christmas time. This is something we're going to do every year. I want to encourage every single family of our church, would you please prayerfully consider joining us? Our family's going to do it. I invite your family to do it. It will be an amazing experience as you live the mission and you watch other people see that the gospel is good news because you and your family were willing to give yourselves for it. Sound good? All right. Uh, one other thing, uh, we had Halloween recently. And I love talking about Halloween because Christians get so weird about Halloween. And I, I implored you, I said, look, we're not doing any ministries on Halloween. Uh, we want you to go be in your community, go be with people, go make a memory. And uh, kudos to those of you who did. Hopefully you got to see God show up in incredible ways. Uh, our family, if you know, we dress up as one theme uh, together every year. And so there's seven of us. And so we always get, hey, uh, one, you know, uh, one theme that can ha handle seven costumes. And so last year, if you remember, uh, we were Willy Wonka and all the Chocolate Factory people. And that was cool. And so this year, a number of you have asked, so I wanted to roll this out to you. Uh, this year, we have any Greatest Showman fans? It's my people, all right? I present to you the Greatest Showman family right here. I know you're really applauding for my wife, who is the bearded woman, and it's amazing. Uh, Michelle always takes our costumes to another level. Uh, I'm P.T. Barnum. Our oldest was the, the giant guy. Uh, that's uh, little guys with Zac Efron, uh, Zendaya, and then the, the uh, albino twins in the movie. Have you ever seen that? We were like, we have two blonde kids. We got to do that. And so uh, we had them be the twins. And here's another one that shows just the kids' costumes. And, and here's what's great. There's no way people can't get in a conversation with you when you are all dressed up as the greatest showman. And so they would see us, they're like, wait, wait a minute, are you, are you going to get, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And so hopefully you took advantage of that. You got to make a memory with your family and with your community. And if it really bothers you that your pastor dressed up for Halloween, sorry, deal with it. I don't know what to tell you, uh, but we do that. All right. Transitioning. Have you ever believed something? that you believe to your core, but you, you knew it was unpopular to believe. 
And maybe you're like, yeah, your view of Halloween, right? Well, just, is there anything you believe that you knew? I believe this is true. I'm drawn to this, but I'm a little bit afraid of telling other people that I believe this. I have a lot of experience with this. Try being a Yankee fan in Portland, okay? A lot of people are like, what did you say your baseball team is? And it's like, okay, I'm not maybe going to tell a lot of people. Or here's this, I'm going to let you, let you in on something. This is maybe more than you want to know. Real vulnerable moment, okay? If it were socially appropriate, I would be the guy always in socks and sandals. I'm just telling you now, <laughs> I'd be that guy. I, I love it. Now, I have to clarify because on Thursday night service, I said this. People went, what kind of sandals? So let me clarify. I'm talking about the sliders, okay? Not the one with the toe between us. Like, that's, that's next level sociopath stuff, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the sliders. But uh, I love that look, and I just have been mocked for it so often that I don't wear it. But I'll have you know, I met my wife, Michelle, wearing socks and sandals. So gentlemen, if it hasn't worked out for you yet, try something new. I'm just saying socks and sandals may be the way to go. Well, today we're going to look at this idea. We are in week six of our series. So if you've got your journals, go ahead and get those out. Uh, we're looking at the I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John. Things that Jesus said about himself. How do we understand how to follow him better if we know what he thought of himself? And that's what we've been in this whole series. Get your Bibles out. We're going to be in John chapter 14. Now, if you're regular with us, you know we use our Bibles every week here. And so if you get a physical Bible out, that would be great. Turn to the New Testament. whole series has been in the book of John. If you've got a Bible app on a phone or a device, I encourage you to get that out as well. There's plenty of good ones that are free. Uh, and so you can read along with us. We want you to learn how to study the Scriptures for yourself. Now, I want to present today's topic uh, with a historical reference. Because oftentimes you go, what? So what? Why are we talking about this? I want to show you the so what as illustrated throughout history. Now to do this, I want to bring up a debate that might get a little tense in here. Uh, it's one of those debates that's been raging for years. Uh, it's got a lot of tension behind it. And as opposed to like pretending that there's not the elephant in the room, I'm just going to name it and we're all going to deal with it together. All right? Here's a debate you obviously are anticipating. Geocentrism versus heliocentrism. I know. I'm going there, people. I'm going there. And you're like, what on earth are you talking about? All right, geocentrism is the idea that the earth is the center of everything, that everything's rotating around the earth, the earth is the center. That is very different than heliocentrism, which is the sun is the center of everything. Everything's revolving around the sun. Now here's the reality. You probably have not spent any time this week or in your lifetime debating this issue, thinking about this issue, wondering back and forth which one is really true. But what you have to understand is that for a lot of years throughout history, this was the thing. I mean, this was the topic of debate, of conversation, and there was raging debate on either side and, and a lot of hostility, a lot of animosity on which one of these two views is true. Now, the way it played out has a lot to teach us today. About 1532, you have a guy named Copernicus. Now, Copernicus is the one that realizes geocentrism is wrong. And he can explain why it's wrong. So he begins writing and explaining why heliocentrism is actually right and geocentrism isn't right. Now, his friends, as he's writing this, his friends are urging him, you have got to publish this. Copernicus, you've got to share this with the world because it will completely change things. And yet... He's hesitant to do it because he knows the world is not going to respond to it. In particular, he didn't want to risk the scorn to which he would expose himself 
on account of the novelty and incomprehensibility of his theses. Basically, this idea is too new and doesn't make sense to people. I don't want to share this. Now, it's not just like, oh, some people might think he's crazy. In particular, Copernicus was afraid of the church because he knew that the church had the power and the church was not on the side of heliocentrism. And so he goes, if I write this, I don't have any idea what would happen to me as a result. That, that his friends keep pursuing him, keep pursuing him. And reluctantly, he finally releases this. But here's the best part. He dedicates his masterpiece to Pope, uh, Pope Paul III. And you're going, why would he do that? Because a great way to get the Pope not to kill you is dedicate your book to him, right? And so ironically, he dedicates this work to the Pope because he goes, maybe then the church won't, you know, disown me and won't do anything negative to me. Even though he knew or believed that what he thought about the earth and about the sun was true. Now let's go to John chapter 14 and we're going to see how this idea plays out even for us today. In John 14, we have Jesus again explaining about himself. We're going to begin reading verse 1. And he's going to show us something about himself that is transformational for those of us who want to follow him. So here's what he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Doesn't that sound beautiful? You're like, oh man, when Jesus talked, people were just in awe of what he said. And they were just following him. No, notice what, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now, if you've ever had that moment with Jesus, we are like, that doesn't make sense to me. You're in such great company. His own disciples have this on a regular basis. Uh, time out, Jesus Nobody knows where you're going. We don't know the way. We have no idea what you're talking about. To which Jesus replied in verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. Whoa. That is a bold statement. Now, this is kind of like a buy one, get two free I am statement, right? Because in one statement, he's telling us three things about himself. And here's what I, I was telling this going, of all the I am statements that we've looked at in this series, this one uniquely is probably the only one more offensive today than when Jesus said it. See, most of these statements we look at today, we go, oh, those are so spiritual. They, they were very offensive statements in the culture in which he said it. And that's what this series has been unpacking. But this one today we go, oh, Jesus, you can't say that. You can't say you're the only way to the Father. I mean, you, you got to lighten that up a little bit. It's, maybe it's making you a little uncomfortable as you think about this statement. Now, last week, Pastor Robbie talked about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. And that's really the third part of what Jesus is saying here, that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. A few weeks ago, I talked about Jesus' statement when he said, I am the gate. And that's very similar to what he said here about being the way. So essentially, we've already kind of covered two-thirds of this statement through other weeks of this series. So today what I want to look at is the middle part of this sentence that we haven't covered yet. What does it mean for Jesus to be the truth? Okay, we've already covered the way, the life. What does it mean for Jesus to be the truth? And that's what we're going to see today. Now, if you've got your journals out and you're taking notes, here's something I'd encourage you to write down. Your approach to truth will either push you from or pull you toward Jesus. Okay, not just truth, but your approach to truth, the way you process what is 
true. Now, I want you to think about magnets, okay? If you have magnets the right way, you push them together and it's like click, they'll go right together and it's very easy. You flip that magnet over, reverse it, all of a sudden you will find that they do not want to come together. I would say the same is true depending on how you approach truth. If you have a biblical, healthy approach to truth, you will find yourself naturally drawn to Jesus. It's like a magnet pulling you in. If you don't have a biblical approach to truth, a healthy approach to truth, you'll find like, man, no matter what I do, I just don't seem to connect with Jesus. And so instead of just saying, hey, just connect with Jesus more, I want to take a step back and go, well, how do we figure out our approach to truth to then figure out how we get the magnets right so that we can experience Jesus the way he talks about here. Let me show you something Jesus said in, elsewhere in the book of John that might surprise you. In John 18, 37, he says this, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now, a lot of times we talk about Christianity today, and especially in the Northwest, right? We'll say, oh, Christianity is a crutch for the weak. It's for those who don't want to think, who just want to have blind faith, and just want to feel good about what they believe. And, and so we'll say things like, oh, atheism, those are the real thinkers. And what you have to understand is this is not the way Jesus thought about following him. Jesus didn't say, hey, everyone on the side of blind faith listens to me. Everyone on the side of just wanting to feel good about what they believe, about wanting to be certain in their beliefs, those are the ones on the side of me. No, no, everyone who's on the side of truth. Oh, you really want to be on the side of truth? Then you will listen to Jesus. It's a different way of thinking about it. Jesus isn't afraid of the truth. He's not, you know, scared by the truth. He is saying he is the truth, which then has some uh, uh, implications for us today. Now, I'm going to give you three statements that I think develop a healthy view of truth if you want to approach it and experience Jesus at the end. I'm going to encourage you to write these three sentences down. But what I will tell you is, for some of you, I'm going to unsettle you before we get to the conclusion. Okay, so you're going to get a little bit like, uh-oh, what are we saying here? Hang with me, take a deep breath, it's going to be okay. All right, number one, not all truth is contained by the Bible. I just get it out. What? I did not come to church to hear the pastor berate the Bible. Yep, you're not here to hear that either. Okay, but not all truth is contained by the Bible. While the Bible is full of truth, it does not exhaustively cover every truth that exists. This is important. And you go, how, how dare you say that? We all know this is true. We just don't think about it in these terms. Gravity is not explicitly explained in the Bible. Does that mean gravity isn't true? No, gravity is true. We, we can prove it. Does that mean the Bible isn't true? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means the Bible doesn't explicitly explain gravity. If you wanted to understand how gravity works, you would not find a verse. You go, oh, go back to that verse, and that's where it explains all the nuances of gravity. It doesn't work like that. But the Bible is also not threatened by truth that isn't contained inside of it. And so, again, you have to begin to understand this to understand the bigger thing. Now, John, elsewhere in his gospel, explains this in a way that is kind of humorous, and yet a lot of us don't seem to focus on this. At the end of his gospel, notice what John says as he ends it. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. John essentially ends his gospel going, look, this is the Reader's Digest version. I ran out of pen and paper. I didn't have enough materials to write. It would go on forever if I told you all the things that Jesus did, even in his earthly ministry. Now, if that is true of Jesus in his physical life, you know, on earth, 
how much more is that true today of the things that God is doing that are not explicitly explained in the text? But it doesn't mean that God isn't doing anything else. I remember uh, uh, one day in Bible college that I've never forgotten. A professor broke us into groups. And he said, all right, uh, pick a group of five. And here's what your challenge. Um, Of all of the books of the Bible, there's 66. Of all the books of the Bible, you only get to keep five. And you get to decide. And every book you don't keep will be forever lost to history. So choose wisely. You know, and he was like, what? It's like, uh, this is an illustration. You've got to pick five books. If you could only keep five books, which of the, the 66 would you keep? And so our group gets in this debate. Like, it's got to be this one and this one. No, this one, because this one teaches you about this. And, and it was a very interesting conversation. If you could only have five books, which five would you keep and why? Well, then each group shared. And I remember realizing we don't all agree on the five books. And it was just an interesting, like, you, your group had a different group of five. Our group had a different group of five. Every group was different. Then the professor said, okay, now you have to choose three books. Like, oh, no. So how do I do three books? And like, you only get three. So we did the same thing. We took two books out, and then we compared, and all of our lists were different. All right, now one book. You get to save one book about which book is it. We go around, and again, we don't all agree on this. And then he said, now imagine that you get no books that all the books of the Bible are forever lost to history. Something happens, we don't have them anymore. Now, how does that change God? How does that change following God? And it was the first time I thought about that way because I remember thinking, well, doesn't change God. God is still God. God is alive. God you know, is still going to do that. We can still follow God even without it. It would be a huge injustice, a huge disservice to us. We'd lost something incredibly valuable. But you could still follow God Without it, right? I I remember thinking this. And and here's the reality. See, the Bible is a finite book. And by that I mean there's only 66 books. They're not going to be 67 next year and 68 and 69. It's not, you know, it's not like a work in progress. It is what it is. It's a finite book. But it's pointing us to an infinite God. You understand that the, the medium, as great as it is, cannot fully capture an infinite God. And if you read about the early church, like if you read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, you have this incredible birth of the early church. But here's what's amazing. The the people in Acts chapter 2 don't have Acts chapter 2. You aware of that? They don't have the the New Testament to go off of. So all that that God was doing in the early church was because of word of mouth, because of stories that they were telling about the fact that Jesus was really God and he really died and he really rose again and that changed everything everything to them. And then we, years later, get to benefit from what they wrote down. But God is bigger than all of that. Uh, And so we have to realize, if we follow uh, the Bible as the only source for truth, as the only place I get my truth, then what you will realize is you are following a dead God. Why? Because if the Bible is the only place that you expect God to show up, then God is never doing anything new, He's never showing up around you. He's always in the past tense. These are the things he used to do. These are things when God was alive, this is what he did. And you will miss the fact that God is still alive. God is still moving. God is present with you as you read about him in the Bible. And so the Bible becomes a filter for us to know what does God look like? What does God sound like? How do we know what God really is? But it is not the equivalent of God himself. In fact, you can make the the, uh, Bible into an idol where you actually don't experience God, the living God. You don't experience Jesus because you're too busy reading about him. 
And the point of the Bible is to show you that Jesus is alive, that he is in our midst, and it's important to do. Now, if you're curious, well, what's, what's the view of this church, you know, when it comes to the Bible? We have eight what we believe statements. One of them addresses the Bible. It says that we believe in the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. That's how we understand the Bible. And I would say we teach from the Bible every single week, but we are pointing to Jesus because that is the story that we find. It's all about Jesus. And if you read the Bible and you miss Jesus who's sitting next to you while you read it, you have missed something monumental. And sadly, it happens to a lot of Christians. Now, let's go back to this, this debate, heliocentrism. So you've got Copernicus, and Copernicus publishes his work, dedicates it to the Pope. Nothing major happens. But 73 years later, there's another guy named Galileo. Have you ever heard of Galileo? Galileo comes around and goes, you know what? we got to take this further. We, we have to really show people that this is true. Now, Galileo is considered one of the inventors of modern science. And, and he begins to push this conversation again. He begins to push it anew. And in 1616, the Inquisition formally declares heliocentrism to be heresy, which is interesting. If you think about heresy, most of the time we think about a theological belief, a belief about God that isn't true. That's heretical. But the church declared heliocentrism, this scientific view of the sun, to be heresy. As a result, they banned any book that dealt with this, uh, they told uh, uh, Galileo that he was forbidden from holding, teaching, or defending any of these ideas. They said, you cannot do anything with this. And so this is all in 1616. And the result is it works. Galileo is terrified of the church. He decides, I'm not going to do anything about it for 16 years. Now, I want you to just think about, what if you knew something to be true to your core? You could explain it was true. You could show that it was true. You knew it was true. But it was so unpopular that you couldn't speak out for what you thought was truth. Well, 16 years later, in 1632, as Galileo is now an old man, he thinks, eh, what do I have to lose? I'm publishing this thing. So he publishes his work and all hell breaks loose. And the church begins to rise up against them and all these things happen. And so the church officially uh, finds him gravely suspect of heresy. And he is kept under house arrest until his death. All because he believed that heliocentrism was true. Now here's the irony of all this. He was right. Now today we look back and go, yeah, Galileo was right. The church was wrong. But why did the church battle against this idea so, so uh, vehemently? Why did the church decide heliocentrism is a heresy? And the answer is because they saw it as a threat to truth. They saw this truth as a threat to the truth of the Bible or the truth about God or the truth about Jesus. And this is what can so easily happen when you don't have a healthy approach to truth. Now, it may not be heliocentrism. It could be any other truth out there. But if you don't have a, a way to make sense out of it, all of a sudden you view everything as this threat to God, and therefore you cannot accurately see truth around you. So if you're with me, this leads us to number two. All truth is God's truth. Okay, so we're building. Not all truth is contained in the Bible, but all truth is God's truth. If you're feeling uncomfortable, I'm going to get you back a little bit here, okay? All truth is God's truth because we know there's truth in the Bible and there is truth in the infinite God around us who is still alive and still at work. We know 
that whatever is true, wherever it is found, is of God. It belongs to God. It is all pointing us to him. Let me show you what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know the way a lot of Christians read this verse? Whatever is true in the Bible, whatever is noble in the Bible, whatever is right in the Bible, that's not the point Paul is making. Paul is saying, Open your eyes to the living God around you. And you claim that truth to to be absolutely of God wherever you find it. This is a bold declaration for the church to go, do not be contained by anything. Go out there and look for God because there is an infinite God that is still at work around you. And this for us today should be a liberating idea. We go, oh, wow, we can learn how to see God everywhere even in places we may not expect, even in secular music, even in secular movies, even in non-Christian things, any truth you find anywhere, if it is true, belongs to Jesus. And this is what it means to understand that Jesus is truth. It is not a threat to him in any way. Let me illustrate it like this. Uh, if you've ever heard the idea that God is love, they go, yeah, that. That sounds Christian to say God is love. Well, it is because it comes from the Bible. Let me show you. 1 John chapter 4 says it like this. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is what the Bible teaches, okay? But imagine you had never read this verse. You didn't know this, okay? So you're trying to process about this and you're brand new to your faith. You just met Jesus. You gave your life to him. You're like, I don't know much about you, but I want to learn. And someone from another religion tells you, hey, did you know? that God is love. Now, if you heard that and you went, that, that seems true. That, that, you know, and then you ask the Christian, hey, is God love? Now the Christian would say, if they know this verse, well, yeah, God is love. You'd go, oh, that's awesome. Now you might be going, well, no, that can't be true if you heard it from another religion. See, if you heard it from another religion, it doesn't change that God is love. That's a true statement. Now that other religion might have a different view of God than you do, but it doesn't change the truth of the statement. God is love. Love. So whether you find this in 1 John chapter 4 or whether you found it through uh, some other neighbor of yours who explained it to you, that statement is true regardless of where it lives, regardless of where it is found. And this is when you begin to understand how to follow Jesus in a deeper way. It all belongs to him. This idea has been called co-illumination, which I think is a very helpful way of thinking about it. Let me explain the way one author uh, explains co-illumination. By co-illumination... I mean that the truth contained in the Bible brings light and understanding to the truth contained in broader creation and culture. And the converse, that the truth revealed in creation and culture can illumine the truth revealed in the Bible. See, because we know that the Bible is absolutely true, it is pointing us to God. We go, I'm going to keep this always in one hand. And I filter what I see in the culture around me by this. And when you start to find things that are true, that are consistent with this, that are around you, you get to adopt all of it. You go, this is true. This is God in my midst. But if something's not true, you go, oh, it doesn't resonate with the Bible. Therefore, it can't be true. And you have a way to co-illuminate both. You can look at culture. You can look at the world around you because you have the Bible. But then also as you see things in the culture, it might help you understand the Bible. Like, oh, that's what that truth was about. Now I'm seeing it in real time. It's a way to experience a whole new part of Jesus. And you find the apostles doing this. When Paul goes to Mars Hill 
And he's in Acts chapter 17, and he, he's looking around, he's going, okay, what am I going to use here? Okay, he goes, you have a, a statue to an unknown God. Let me explain who that God is. And you're going, whoa, 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 that sounds crazy, Paul. Don't say that. What is Paul doing? He's using co-illumination. Hey, you have this thing. I can point you to something else here. I'm going to use this to bridge the gap, and I'm going to show you something true. It's what we find, and yet a lot of times Christians get very uncomfortable. No, only truth is in the Bible. And you begin to miss what God is doing around us, which leads us to number three. Number three, for us, truth is a journey. We're now we're talking about finite book, infinite God, and we're finite. We are limited. Uh, we have our, uh, certainly we have our limitations. So if you're a Christian, there should be a mix in you of certainty, things that you are certain about, and things that you are uncertain about. But the problem is Christians go, oh, if I'm a Christian, I have to be certain about everything. I have to believe all my opinions, all my views are absolutely 100%. I cannot acknowledge any room for uncertainty, any room for doubt. And I would say that is to miss the point that Jesus is saying here. When you decide to follow God, you commit to wrestling with truth for the rest of your life. That's what it means. If you're following Jesus and you believe that Jesus is the truth, then you become a student of truth till the day you die. Jesus, teach me something new. Show me something I don't. You are an infinite God of truth. Show me things. Teach me. Grow me. Challenge me. Uh, we want to be students of truth, which means we have to acknowledge we don't have it all figured out. I'll be the first to tell you. I change my mind on things. I, I see things differently than I had seen them before. That's why I read so crazily because I love finding out things that I don't currently know because I believe that Jesus is the truth. I'm not afraid of what I'll find. And yet we need more of this in the church. We need more of this amongst Christians that go, yeah, I don't know, I'm still working through that. I'm still trying to figure that out. Let me show you a passage maybe you've never seen before. In 2 Peter chapter 3, this is the apostle Peter. He's gonna talk about something, a little insider talk between him and Paul, okay? This is what Peter says. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Oh, that sounds so beautiful. Then what he says next. He writes, Paul, the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. That's the apostle Peter saying that. Peter's like, look, have you ever read Romans? What on earth is Paul doing there? Like, man, that is some wisdom of God, but it is hard to understand. And if the Apostle Peter, who walked on water with Jesus, can acknowledge some of the things Paul says are hard to understand, maybe we can have a little bit more freedom with one another. To go, you know what? That's a little bit hard to understand. I'm still working through that. I'm still processing through that. I don't know. And give up this idea that, oh, I'm a Christian, so I have all the answers. I know all the perfect things about God. That's not the way it works. Now, I'm a guy, and guys do not like admitting we're wrong. Now, women, I think you can relate with this as well. I just think guys, we're particularly terrible at this. I don't like when I have to acknowledge, oh, I just argued you something, and it was actually wrong. And so when it happens, uh, and it happens more than I care to remember, I can remember these because it, like, sears it into my conscience. And so I can remember years ago, one of the worst times I ever had this. We were in a life group. Now that we got done talking about whatever we were talking about that night, I remember we got into a very weird tangent conversation. And we were talking about the, the likelihood, the odds of flipping a coin. Now you might be going, it's not much of that conversation, it's 50-50. But here was my argument, hang with me. My argument was, imagine you flipped a coin 10 times in a row, and for 10 times it was tails every single time. 
I said you're more likely on the 11th to get heads. And the reason why is because if you take a, a broader you know, amount of that number, it's going to, odds are, going to even out at 50-50. So if you are heavy on one side, it will average out the more you do it. Now, I was arguing this so passionately. I had illustrations and anecdotes. And I mean, I was like getting everybody worked up. And I won over about half of our life group that were like, yeah, that makes sense. The other half of the life group's like, that does not make sense. Here's why it doesn't make sense. And we're going back and forth probably for like an hour. I don't know. It was like a long conversation, very passionate, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And we just kind of concluded at a draw. Like, I don't know. I don't know who's right. Well, they go home and I'm like, I'm going to prove to them that I'm right. So I get on my computer, Google. I'm like, I've got to figure this out. How do I prove this? So I'm trying to explain my argument to Google. Like, what is this, you know, and how do I explain this? And I come across a phrase that I had never heard before in my life. The phrase is the gambler's fallacy. Now the gambler's fallacy is exactly my argument. <laughs> and it explained how many people suffer from this because it's not true. Now, friends, put yourself in my shoes. Who do you tell? <laughs> it's a real thing. Thinking, this could be between just me and Google. Just no one else. No one else needs to know about the gambler's fallacy. It'll be me and Google. And yet I have this moment where I'm like, I need to tell them. So I literally craft an email. I copy the link to the article I just read explaining it. I said, hey, guys. I want to explain to you a new phrase I learned tonight. It's called the gambler's fallacy. Here's my whole argument, and I was wrong. And I remember that moment because I'm like, oh, that hurts. And you know what I can tell you? I have changed my mind on a number of things as an adult. Things that I was raised with, things that I used to believe, things that I went, you know what? The more I read about that, the more I challenge that, the more I pray about that, that doesn't make sense to me like it used to. And so you change your mind. And yet, let me ask you this question. When's the last time you changed your mind about something really important? like something with your faith. When's the last time you went, I used to think that, and now I think that. And if you say, I've never changed my mind, or I can't even recall, here, here's my, my reality for you. You're not growing. If you cannot think of a time that God, the person of truth, has changed your mind on something, it doesn't mean you got it all figured out. Oh, man, you just arrived earlier than the rest. It means you're not growing. You have stopped allowing the person of truth to reveal new things to you. And it's not a place that you want to be. This is, on a side note, another reason why you should be in a life group. Because you'd rather them call you out on stuff than you post it on social media or say it in a sermon. And then all of a sudden everybody hears about it, right? So just save yourself the effort. Be in community. Those are the people that can say, hey, I love you, but you sound crazy right now. That's not true. <laughs> Let me close with this. In 1992, 26 years ago, in 1992, the Catholic Church finally changed its views on heliocentrism. In our lifetime, that is 359 years after they labeled Galileo a heretic, they changed their mind on him. Let me show you what Pope John Paul II in November 4, 1992 said about Galileo. Thanks to his intuition as a brilliant physicist and by relying on different arguments, Galileo, who practically invented the experimental method, understood why the sun could function as the center of the world, as it was then known. That is to say, as a planetary system. 
Notice this argument. The error of the theologians of the time when they maintained the centrality of the earth was to think that our understanding of the physical world structure was in some way imposed by the literal sense of sacred scripture. That's as close as you come to the Pope apologizing for making a guy a heretic, right? Like he's saying, sorry, Galileo, like we were wrong, my bad. Like, you know, it only took him 359 years to say he's sorry. How long does it take you? Oh, I, I was wrong. Yep, I argued that. that. That wasn't right. I went back and I talked to the spirit of truth about it. The guy that is truth, he embodies truth. Yeah, he told me that I was, I was wrong, so I changed my mind. I, I don't ever have that, Jeremy. I just... I just was born with all the right opinions and all the right beliefs and just read the Bible for what it says. I think you're, I think you're missing the person here. In uh, chapter 16, John says this. I have much more to say to you. This is Jesus talking. More than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. This verse pumps me up. This is the person of truth, Jesus, saying, when I leave, I'm going to send you the spirit of truth. Oh, what do we need that for? He will guide you into all the truth. You don't know how to navigate truth. You don't know how to filter through it. Guess what? You're going to have the spirit of truth. He'll even tell you what is yet to come. You're going to know things that no one else should know. No one else could know. But you've got the spirit of truth guiding you into the person of truth. You think atheism has more to offer the truth than this? This is what we do not understand what Jesus is telling us. It is the person of truth giving you the spirit of truth to tell you you can live differently. You can experience life differently when you understand who this is. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us in this journey of following Jesus. So if you're like, I'm in, sign me up, I want to experience this, here's three things to close, easy things you can do. Number one, ask God to reveal truth to you. So simple. God, I want to understand this topic better. I want to understand this book better. I want to, I want to have a better opinion about whatever I have an opinion about. Ask God to reveal truth to you. Pray about it. God, I, I want to experience you. I know you're the God of truth. I need the spirit of truth to guide me in this conversation. And when he does, listen to what God says. Listen when God goes, hey, you're wrong about that. Go, oh, I, I, need, to, I need to change some things here. I, I, I'm going to change my view. Listen to what God says through other believers. You see, they have the same Holy Spirit that you do. And sometimes what I have found is that if God can't communicate to you through the Holy Spirit, he'll find someone around you with the same Holy Spirit and use them. The dirtiest way God does this in my life is using my wife, Michelle. It is absolutely not fair. But there'll be moments where God is working on something in my heart and I'm like, no, I don't see it. And all of a sudden, secret agent comes in. She's like, hey, I think you need to you know, change your view on that. I'm like, oh, dirty. All right, fine. It's the same Holy Spirit. Be in communion with those around you. Listen when God is speaking to you directly or through the Bible or through other believers. Third, test everything. Test everything. We get so scared as Christians. Don't read that book. That book's terrible. What are we afraid of? You're afraid of non-truth? You're afraid of someone saying a lie? If we're Christians, we should be the best ones at pointing out a lie. Nope, that's not true. 
We should be so good at it because we are following the person of truth through the spirit of truth. What are we afraid of? It cracks me up when Christians are like, don't read that book. Like, I'm going to read it now. Why, why, why don't you want to read it? Like, like I'm going to test everything. Right? I'm not afraid of anything. And you also know God is never going to tell you to hate someone. God told me this. Nope, he didn't. Test it. God told me to cheat on my spouse. No, he didn't. Test it. We just like, you don't have to be afraid of non-truths. We have the spirit of truth guiding us into all truth. I'll close with what Mark Batterson said. If you seek answers, you won't find them. But if you seek God, the answers will find you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we believe you are the person of truth that you are truth embodied, that there is no truth that competes with you. You lay claim to all of it. So may we not approach you and approach our faith with timidity or fear or uncertainty. May we approach you with a confidence that you have given us the spirit of truth to guide our way forward as we navigate. May we have open eyes to see the infinite God at work all around us, wherever you choose to show yourself. May we learn how to see you, how to recognize you. May we fully invest ourselves into the Bible, into using it as a filter to know what we are seeing around us as it co-illuminates the world. And may we always be focused on you, on seeing the living Jesus in our midst. May we be communities, all of our different campuses, those online, those watching, wherever they are. May we be known for how we pursue truth and how we experience you as we're drawn in like a magnet. God, may we not be set in our ways. May we not think that we know it all. But may we every day learn more and more as we learn to see Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.